This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, November 18th. I'm Mary Margaret Olihan. And I'm Doug Blair. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse appears to be coming to a close. After hours and hours of testimony, the jury is preparing to reach a verdict. Attorney Andrew Bronca has been extensively covering the trial's ins and outs. He joins the Daily Signal podcast to share his thoughts and explain how he thinks the jury should find Rittenhouse. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Andrew, let's hit the top news stories of the day. On Wednesday, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, suspended implementation of President Joe Biden's vaccine mandate for private employers. The move comes after a federal court blocked the mandate last week, calling it staggeringly overbroad and saying that the mandate likely violates the constitutional structure that safeguards our collective liberty. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration website says the court ordered that OSHA take no steps to implement or enforce the COVID-19 vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard until further court order. While OSHA remains confident in its authority to protect workers in emergencies, OSHA has suspended activities related to the implementation and enforcement of the ETS pending further developments in the litigation. Biden administration lawyers say that stopping the mandate will cost dozens or even hundreds of lives per day. According to data released Wednesday by government researchers, for the first time in recorded history, more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses during a year-long period concluding in April. That's up nearly 30 percent from the year before. Per the New York Times, the rise in overdoses was likely fueled by fentanyl, a drug 100 times more potent than morphine. Many illegal drug manufacturers add fentanyl to other drugs to increase their effects, leading to accidental overdoses. In a statement from the White House, President Biden said, To all those families who have mourned a loved one and to all those people who are facing addiction or in recovery, you are in our hearts. Together, we will turn the tide on this epidemic. The data illustrated regional differences in death counts, with the largest increases in California, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, and Kentucky. On Tuesday, the International Olympic Committee released new guidance for intersex and transgender athletes. The guidance reverses policies requiring biologically male athletes who identify as transgender females to lower their testosterone levels. The International Olympic Committee's 2015 framework had formerly said that biologically male athletes can only compete in the female category if their testosterone levels are low enough. Under the new framework, officials will no longer assume that biological males have automatic advantages over biological women. The International Olympic Committee said in a press release that the new rules seek to promote a safe and welcoming environment for everyone involved in elite-level competition. House Democrats appear set to censure and strip committee assignments from Congressman Paul Gosar, Republican from Arizona, over an edited anime clip he posted on his Twitter, where he attacked characters with the faces of President Joe Biden and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Gosar tweeted the clip with the caption, any anime fans out there? Last week, but later deleted it. Gosar then released a statement saying that the clip was a symbolic portrayal of a fight over immigration policy. House Democrats argued that Gosar was inciting violence with the clip, and Representative Jackie Speer, Democrat from California, introduced a censure resolution last Friday. 
In a speech on the floor of the House, Speaker Nancy Pelosi signaled her approval for the censure measure and criticized House Republicans for not taking action against Gosar. Here's Pelosi via the Hill. The resolution on the floor today is about accountability. It is about integrity in this House, and it will serve as a reminder to this Congress and to this country that the House is committed to upholding the highest standards of decorum in all that we do, as is said in Rule 23, shall behave at all times in a manner that shall reflect credibly on the House. Gosar's censure means he would be removed from the two committees he serves on, the House Oversight and Natural Resources Committees. Cortez also serves on the Oversight Committee. Now stay tuned for my conversation with attorney Andrew Bronca as we discuss the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers. Social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. Our guest today is Andrew Bronca, an attorney and author of The Law of Self-Defense, who's been closely tracking and writing on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Andrew, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. At the time of this recording, the jury has not made a decision in the Kyle Rittenhouse case yet. But as somebody who's been watching the trial, what do you think the jury should decide? Well, I don't even think it's close. It's, it should be an acquittal on all these criminal charges. I'm, I'm sure what we're experiencing here is, the, is a holdout of one or perhaps two jurors. Uh, the evidence is not close on any of these issues. And in self-defense, the state has to disprove self-defense, not by a little bit, but beyond a reasonable doubt. And they never presented evidence that was inconsistent with self-defense at, at any point in this trial. Now, they're trying to do kind of a backdoor attack on self-defense by claiming that uh, Rittenhouse provoked the attacks against him. Uh, if provocation loses you self-defense, so if they can convince the jury he provoked the fight, then they don't have to worry about the, the self-defense elements. Uh, they don't have to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt because a provoker is not qualified to claim self-defense. But the only evidence they ever had of this supposed provocation is this uh, really ridiculous drone video that that was delivered by the evidence fairy on the prosecution's doorstep in the middle of the trial. Um, you can't make anything out of it. And then not only that, but they didn't provide the defense with the same resolution video that they had. The version provided to the defense is one-sixteenth the resolution of what the prosecution uh, had in their hands. So the defense wasn't able to properly prepare their defense, properly prepare their client when he took the took the very high-risk step of taking the witness stand to testify on his own behalf. The, the defense never even knew that a higher-resolution version of the video existed until after the evidence had closed. They didn't know until this past Monday uh, when the jury was just about to start deliberation. So it's, it, it's really a, a reprehensible set of circumstances. I think you're really hitting on something here that's – this is a very complicated trial. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on. There's a lot of evidence that gets entered in at certain points, and it's very hard to keep track of things. One of the things that's happening right now is that the defense is asking for a mistrial due in part much to what you've explained 
uh, recently. Can you explain specifically what grounds the defense is using to claim that there should be a mistrial? And then, in your opinion, should they get that mistrial? Yeah, so there's actually two motions for the mistrial. And it's important for people to understand it's not just a mistrial. It's a mistrial with prejudice. The with prejudice part is important uh, because it means that they can't bring Kyle back for a retrial. Uh, otherwise, they're free to bring him back. And frankly, in a normal criminal defense, I would say a mistrial is a win for the defendant uh, because at least he didn't get convicted. Um, but in this case, when you're dealing with a defendant who's so obviously innocent of these charges against him, or I should say not guilty of these charges against him, um, a, a mistrial here, if it doesn't include the prejudice factor, is, uh, is basically stealing an acquittal from this defendant. And they're just going to put him through this process again and again and again until they grind this kid into dust. So the defense doesn't want merely a mistrial. They want that mistrial with prejudice, so it's done. Uh, the grounds for it are, frankly, for the first motion, were really rather egregious conduct by the prosecutors, intentional egregious con conduct. Uh, one of the prosecutors, Binger, spoke in front of the jury about the fact that the defendant had asserted his right to silence. You're not allowed to do that. Your right to silence cannot be held against you in court, should never have been mentioned. And he referenced some evidence that the judge had ruled excluded from the trial in front of the jury. And he knew he was not allowed to do this, either of these things, because it had been discussed that morning before the jury was brought in. So these were intentional acts by him, intentional acts of misconduct. And the theory of the defense is he knows he's not allowed to mention the defendant's assertion of his Fifth Amendment rights. This is an experienced prosecutor. This is not some, some odd facet of law. It's core criminal defense law. So he must have done it intentionally, and he did it for the purpose of throwing the trial, of getting a mistrial, so he could come back again in a second trial, maybe with a more amenable jury, maybe with a more amenable judge, and take a second bite at the apple. And there's Wisconsin case law, court law, where this has happened before for this reason, and the courts have ruled, look, if that's why the prosecutor is doing it, intentionally throwing the case so he can get a second bite of the apple, we will dismiss with prejudice so that he's not able to do that. Now they've added to that motion for the mistrial with prejudice this whole drone video footage uh, fiasco where they failed to provide the uh, defense with the same resolution video that they had. In effect, they didn't provide the defense with the video, right? The one that was actually presented in evidence. And that's what they call a Brady violation. That's a failure of the prosecution's obligation under the U.S. Constitution to provide the defense with the evidence that's going to be used against them in court. It might have been by accident. They might have uploaded it to a Dropbox and the Dropbox, you know, compressed the video somehow without them knowing. So it may have been unintentional. If it was intentional, this is a malicious prosecution and there should be charges brought against these prosecutors and it should pierce their normal prosecutorial immunity. We don't know if it was intentional, but frankly, even if it was unintentional, in combination with the other intentional misconduct, the Fifth Amendment, the excluded evidence references, um, honestly, the only justice I see in this case moving forward would be that mistrial with prejudice. I think it's it's pretty clear you you feel that the prosecutor has acted, if not maliciously, at least pretty radically incompetently as they've proceeded throughout this trial. I want to focus on the defense. The defense has been criticized on occasion for uh, some what have been called maybe some some legal missteps. What do you think of the job that the defense has done for Kyle Rittenhouse so far? Well, so I, I I know they've been criticized, and sometimes by lawyers I have a lot of respect for are levering some uh, some of this criticism. 
I have to be honest, during the course of the trial, I don't, I didn't really see it. Um, you know, one of the big criticisms is they didn't object at every opportunity, but I have to be honest, you don't do that. I mean, you don't object to every place where it's technically permissible to object. The trial would never proceed. You kind of customize where you're going to object. So it's on particularly important points and where you know you're likely to have your objection sustained by the judge. I mean, if, if the judge has, by his conduct, made clear he's going to overrule your objections on a particular issue, there's, there's no point to keep objecting on that particular issue. It's not going to go your way. Um, so I, I didn't feel there was much... Um, uh, legitimacy, frankly, to a lot of those criticisms. I will say that I was very disappointed in the defense closing argument, for sure. And I, I wrote about that publicly. I, I, I think they, I think it was, it's, it was a competent job, but that's not enough with these stakes. You needed to get as close to perfect as you possibly could when we're talking about an 18-year-old uh, man looking at spending the rest of his life in a cage. Uh, you know, a workmanlike closing was not adequate, in my opinion. Let's dive into that a little more. What in terms of the job that the defense did with the closing statement could have been improved? You're you're saying that it was just it wasn't good enough. Where where would you have highlighted? Well, there there were a few things that really bothered me about it. One was just the tone. The tone was very angry and belligerent. Uh, and listen, there is good reason to be angry over this trial. This is a terrible injustice. I understand why defense attorney Richards is angry. I'm angry about this. But the role of the closing argument is is not to let defense counsel air their grievances and anger at the prosecution. Uh, the role of the closing argument is to bring to your side any jurors that might not already be there. Uh, now, some jurors are on your side, and they're probably angry about this case too, but you're expressing anger as a defense attorney. You don't need to convince them to your side. They're already there. What you're worried about is the jurors who are not yet on your side, who may have some sympathy for the quote-unquote victims in this case, or their families, or have have proven um, you know amenable to some of the prosecution's rhetorical tricks in this case, you need to persuade those people over to your side. And you're not going to do that with anger because they're not angry. If they were angry over the prosecution, they already would be on your side. Uh, so I think the problem is that Richards was approaching the jury from his personal perspective of this case, which is a legitimate perspective to have, but it doesn't accomplish the mission of bringing over to your side the people who don't share that perspective. You have to convince them by other means. And I would have taken a much more sympathetic tone uh, along the lines of, look, we all wish none of this had happened. Kyle wished none of this had happened. We all wish these people were still alive and with their families. But my client didn't cause that to happen. They compelled him to act in self-defense and take that much more sympathetic tone to get people over uh, to your side of the table. Uh, the other thing I didn't like about it was he, he basically stepped through the, the witness testimony in chronological order as they were presented in the trial. And he was kind of meandering and wandering and he, he made the factual points he needed to make, but he never kind of stitched them together in a story or a narrative, an arc, uh, to draw a picture, paint a portrait for the jury of innocence for his client. Uh, I, I don't think you get that much value by just repeating the witness testimony in the same sequence the jury's already heard it in the trial. I think you need to do more than that. I, I think you need to take those building blocks, those Legos, and, and construct a story and narrative that's compelling for the jury. Uh, and th and that, nothing like that was done. Um, 
And there was no reason for that not to be done. I mean, that's, that's what a skilled criminal defense attorney ought to be doing. Let's take a step back from the defense and the prosecution. Uh, you've been watching this trial for quite a while now, and you've been blogging about it for both your site and for legal insurrection. Would you be able to give our listeners some of the highlights from the trial that you feel like kind of define what this uh, trial was all about? Well, there's there's a, a common pattern you see in many of these uh, cases where there's uh, use of force is charged. It's pretty apparent. It's self-defense. Uh, in a non-politicized case, this would never have been brought to trial, but it becomes politicized. Um, and what tends to happen when you have a case that's being brought for political reasons and not on legal merit is that the prosecution finds they don't have legal merit to demonstrate to the jury. So they have to call witnesses. So every day you see the state's witnesses and you expect the state's witness to testify in a way that builds this mountain of evidence contrary to self-defense, that disproves self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the state's burden. But in these politically charged cases, what happens is the state presents a witness and either their testimony is ambiguous or it's actually helpful to the defense. Their next state witness, same thing. Next state witness, same thing. And, and there's no evidence that's inconsistent with self-defense where you have to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's increasing evidence from the state's own witnesses that's consistent with self-defense. I mean, the big example here is Gage Grosskreutz, who testified that, you know, Kyle never shot at him until he was pointing his own pistol at Kyle. Uh, that he testified he was worried himself about the injuries Kyle might have sustained by Anthony Huber hitting him in the head with a skateboard. Uh, this is not testimony that's helpful to the prosecution, but it is testimony that's helpful to the defense. And Grosskreutz is a state witness and a victim, according to the state, of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. So when you see this day after day after day, I mean, frankly, when the state rested, I, I, I don't know why the case wasn't dismissed right then. Because there was no reasonable jury could look at the evidence that had been presented and conclude that this was anything other than lawful self-defense. But it's this whole provocation issue. And the judge looked at this drone video. He couldn't see anything. I mean, he sat for 30 minutes in front of a 4K TV watching this few seconds of video loop over and over and over again. He couldn't make anything out of it. But he has a lot of faith and uh, gives a lot of discretion to the jury to carry out their role as fact finders. And his position was, look, I can't see anything here, but it's an issue in dispute, a factual issue in dispute. And if that's the case, we ought to let the jury consider it. And that's how we find ourselves where we are now. Let's go back to a more personal profile of somebody, uh, which would be the judge, Bruce Schroeder. Some have called his behavior during the trial into question, calling him partial or biased towards the defense. What do you think of the job that Judge Schroeder has been doing so far? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's fine. Uh, you know, he, he, he talks a lot at the prosecution. He's yelled at the prosecution. He's... Uh, uh, told them he thinks from time to time he thinks they're acting not in good faith, which means he thinks they're acting in bad faith. Of course, that's the only other option. But he doesn't follow through. I mean, he doesn't actually hold them accountable. They still get their evidence in. They still get their arguments in. They're still um, excused for the obviously intentional misconduct. They they make up some excuses, and the judge accepts that excuse. And and poor Kyle Rittenhouse simply proceeds further and further and further into this trial to these deliberations. So. He scolds the prosecution from time to time, but uh, I don't see anybody being held accountable in, in any meaningful way in this case. Uh, I think by and large, he's done a good job. 
But again, he's he's a guy who really believes in the role of the jury very, very strongly. And if there's a scintilla of dispute of evidence on a fact at issue in this case, he's going to hand it over to the jury. And there are supposed to be thresholds that evidence has to meet. For example, these images, these unbelievably blurry images that the prosecution presented that were supposed to show Kyle pointing his rifle at somebody, that that was the act of provocation, according to the state, that triggered all this. Um, They had the expert come in who, quote-unquote, enhanced these images. I would say doctored these images. Um, And the expert himself uh, couldn't say that his versions were fair and accurate representations of the original. In fact, he'd never looked at them side by side next to each other. I mean, to my mind, that that's not even close to meeting the threshold of evidence, quality of evidence that should be met before you hand it to a jury to consider. You're not supposed to hand the, the jury evidence that's garbage, that they have to speculate about what it's showing or what it means. Uh, and that, that just wasn't done here. One of the things that really struck me when I was watching this trial was when Rittenhouse himself went up and took the stand and then gave his own testimony. And you wrote on your website uh, that the decision was, quote, a high stakes bet by the defense and one that always has the risk of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Would you be able to elaborate more on that statement and, and kind of explain what you meant by that? Sure. So there's when you when you're considering putting your client as a criminal defense attorney on the witness stand, there's there's usually three risks uh, that you're facing when you do that. Uh, And they could be catastrophic, all three of them. Uh, Normally, one of the risks is that your client's criminal history is going to come out. If you're a criminal defense attorney, most of your clients are criminals. They have an extensive criminal history that normally is not admissible in evidence in front of the jury, unless your client takes the witness stand, because then he's a witness like anybody else. He can be impeached for his veracity, just like anybody else. So his criminal record becomes relevant, admissible. The jury learns about everything he's ever been convicted of before. So normally you just can't put your client on the witness stand because this would happen. It would be a train wreck uh, for your defense. We don't have that risk with Kyle because, well, he doesn't have a criminal background, nothing meaningful. I guess he drove without you know, a suspended driver's license or something like that, but n- nothing that would be really meaningful to this case. So we don't have that particular risk, but there's two other risks that you always have, no matter how clean your client is. And we certainly had those risks with Kyle. One is that the prosecutor will, will be sarcastic and snide and basically goad your client into some kind of outburst, uh, particularly an angry outburst in this case, Uh, And that would be very bad because it would suggest, of course, your client's not in control of his emotions, tends to get angry, and that would be not so consistent with discriminating self-defense, reasonable self-defense. The other risk that you have is, you know, when the prosecutor is working through the trial, he knows already what his closing argument is going to look like. He's got it kind of framed, like a a house might be framed, but not quite finished. Um, And what he's looking to do through the course of the trial, through his state's witnesses uh, and defense witnesses as well, is to um, have brought into evidence in front of the jury the building blocks he needs to complete that framed structure. So he he's looking for specific words to be said, specific phrases to be used, because he's going to repeat those in his closing argument. So he's not just asking questions for like generalized information. He's if he's good, he's crafting his questions in such a way that the answers will be those building blocks that he needs. Um, And unfortunately, the witness, not being a legal expert, legal professional, doesn't know 
when the words they're saying are innocuous or when they're going to be catastrophic. And that's especially true for the defendant himself. He's asked questions, he says words in response, and he may not know that those particular words he just said are in fact going to be critical components in the prosecutor's closing argument, which is what happens here. Uh, now, I think Kyle did a fine job. I don't think he really harmed himself. I think he came across as uh, credible, as honest, uh, as basically an 18-year-old kid uh, who just had to defend himself because he really thought he was going to die otherwise. But you don't know that going in. You don't know how your client's going to perform. Once they're in that seat, they're in that seat until the prosecutor's done with them. And this prosecutor had Kyle under cross-examination for over three hours. So I think it worked out okay. I'm not sure the juice was worth the squeeze. I'm not sure what they got out of that was, it, I think it was worth the actual experience, but you don't know what the actual experience is going to be going in. So I'm not sure it was worth the risk, the potential bad experience, that snatching of defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, but in the end, it worked out okay, I think. Um, so you can say in hindsight, I guess it was an okay decision. Um, it always makes me really nervous, I can tell you that. I think that that's actually a really interesting point to to note that witnesses in this trial, maybe this is just me as more of a layperson noticing this, but witnesses seem to be really essential in this trial. It was less evidence-based and more, at least in, in my mind, the witnesses were sort of a bigger part. Some of the bombshell moments that we had were, were like Grage Grosskreutz and Richard McGinnis, who seemed to benefit the defense more than the prosecution with their testimony. How did the role of testimony affect this trial more so than maybe other trials? Uh, well, it was interesting. So there was uh, McGinnis and Grosskreutz in particular provided good first-person testimony, things they observed that were independent of video. Uh, Ryan Balch also provided important testimony when he testified, uh, and so did Joanne Fiedler when they testified about the death threats by Rosenbaum um, against Kyle or in Kyle's presence, uh, respectively. Uh, but a lot of the testimony was actually not, um, not really testimonial in nature. It was validating the videos that the state wanted to introduce, because you can't just show a video to a jury. Somebody has to come in, a human, videos can't testify. Yet somebody has to come in and look at that video and be able to tell the jury, this is a fair and accurate representation of what was happening there. Uh, so a lot of these witnesses were actually there just to provide that evidentiary foundation for the video. And then the video effectively provides its own testimony. Interesting. One of the things that I also wanted to hit on briefly was there are some people that are claiming that since Rittenhouse crossed state lines, he's not a, he's not from Wisconsin. He doesn't live in Kenosha. He left and he he went to Kenosha. That means that there are legal implications for for what he did. Is there any validity to these claims that since he crossed state lines to get to Kenosha, there's something he needs to suffer for this, or there's a legal implication for it? And no, there's no legal implication. There's just rhetorical implications. It's it's part of the narrative the prosecution's been building about how. Uh, you know, we are Kenosha, this is our community, a terrible thing happened. But what we didn't need was outsiders coming in. We did not need chaos tourists coming to our city to make things worse, which is, of course, how he's trying to characterize how he explicitly has characterized Kyle Rittenhouse as a chaos tourist who came to Kenosha, walked around with a rifle. What did he think was going to happen in the midst of all that chaos, but a high probability that he was going to have to use force? 
against someone, or alternatively, that he's an active shooter who actually wanted to use force, and that was his mission the entire time. I've never seen an active shooter clean graffiti off a school building before uh, going on the rampage, but that's the narrative the prosecutor's been trying to tell here. Uh, and a lot of this is misinformation that he's he's phrased things in such a way that it made the information misinformation, disinformation, amenable to the media to repeat, like this narrative of he crossed state lines, as if he crossed state lines with the gun, for example. Well, that didn't happen. The gun was never in Illinois. Um, he crossed state lines as if that was somehow unusual or aberrant. I mean, th if you've ever lived on, near the border of a state, crossing the state line is, is routine. You, you go there shopping, whatever. And in this particular case, uh, Kenosha was a good part of Kyle's sense of community. He worked there. His father lived there. His grandmother lived there. Uh, he went there all the time. Um, so to say he was uh, an out, it, they make it sound like he was from some foreign nation, like he came from Canada or something. Uh, he, he only lived about 10 minutes outside of the city and was in the city routinely all the time. Um, frankly, I think the defense could have done a better job on that. I mean, they did mention the things I just said in their closing, uh, but I would have been a lot more forceful about it because my concern would be that, you know, the jury might buy into this prosecution idea that Kyle was some outsider who was just a chaos tourist. I mean, one of the risks you have here is the defense, they really had no evidence contrary to self-defense. Their evidence in favor of provocation was, frankly, I would say laughable. But you have to be concerned that your client may end up getting convicted just for rhetorical reasons, that there's some general sense that he was a bad actor, that he came here when he didn't need to. There was a curfew. He broke that. He was walking around with the gun and walking around with the gun was perfectly legal for him. I mean, that's why the gun charge was ultimately dismissed, should have been dismissed a year ago, 14 months ago, but it was dismissed before the jury went into deliberations. So there's nothing actually unlawful the prosecution can point at. But if they have enough stuff to talk about that they can characterize as somehow um, uh, him being a, a bad actor, you may find your client convicted, especially of one of the lesser included charges, simply because the jury's developed a bad feeling about him, even though no particular crime has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. As we begin to wrap up, I want to kind of wrap up with that idea that there's this kind of presupposed notion about who Kyle Rittenhouse is. Obviously, this trial has garnered massive attention nationally. This is something that everybody at the water cooler is able to talk about, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Do you think that the verdict and the trial itself could then have any long-term implications for self-defense cases as a whole or other areas of the law? And then what do you think about the fact that this trial has been aired on TV? Does that contribute to maybe these long-term implications that we're looking at? Well, I don't think it has any technical legal implications. Self-defense law in America is pretty good, I have to say. Um, if it's applied in a fair and impartial way, it's pretty good. The trouble is we run into these cases where the process is being used as the punishment. So even where a prosecutor knows he's got virtually no possibility of disproving self-defense, especially not disproving it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is his burden to carry, um, they'll bring the case anyway, and they'll lose at trial. But meanwhile, the client's Look, anytime you're in front of a jury as a defendant, there's a 10% chance you go to prison. I don't care how innocent you are. That's just part of the noise in the system. Innocent people get convicted. That's why we're supposed to have gates and thresholds to prevent obviously innocent people from being put at that risk of wrongful conviction in the first place. Plus, the cost is staggering. I mean, if you've shot someone in self-defense and they've died and they decide to prosecute you after the fact and you're facing a murder or manslaughter charge, it's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. 
So imagine if you don't have that kind of money sitting around, you're selling your home, you're selling your business, you're selling your uh, cashing out your kids' college funds to scrape together whatever money you need to scrape together so you don't spend the rest of your life living in a cage. And that, that, that's punishment, even if you are ultimately acquitted unanimously by a jury. And then just imagine, heaven forbid, you have a mistrial without prejudice, and the prosecutor puts you through it all again. That just sounds absolutely horrific. If people want to read more of your commentary on the trial or more of your work in general, where should they go? Best place to go is simply our website, lawofselfdefense.com. Excellent. Well, that was Andrew Bronca, an attorney and author of The Law of Self-Defense, who's been closely tracking and writing on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Andrew, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.